I'm Panty Bliss, and this is the Panty Personals, my pandemic podcast, which is a bit like the pandemic itself, that it just keeps coming back and back again. A year after we first started, we have a brand new season of conversational delights and musical treasures. And now the Panty Personals has joined forces with Go Loud to make sure you can always find us. Of course, we'll still be in all the usual podcast places, from iTunes to Spotify and the rest, but we'll also now be on the Go Loud app, so check it out. And if you love us, do tell your mates, and if you don't, well, nobody likes a whinger. So first up in season three, I've invited a gorgeous Gail Gore, a woman of talent and story, into my parlour. It's Dingle native Pauline Scanlon, whose voice has been described by the Irish Times as a superb mix of China cup fragility and steely strength. Kind of like my goddess, Dolly Parton. Pauline has been singing professionally since she was 15. And while the Kerry Gale duck is her roots, she now calls Hedford County Galway home. And along with her Nordy man, fellow musician Eamon Murray and their daughter, Kitty. Hello, Kitty. Hello, Kitty. <laughs> um, Dan Hepburn. Uh, she is one of the founders of Fair Play, which we'll be talking about later, pushing for gender equality in traditional music. And Pauline's new album, Unquiet, is a remarkable collection of songs inspired by her late mother, Eileen, that get beneath the lives of women in Ireland and reclaims their agency. Pauline, welcome. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm delighted Love to be here. To have you. Because I, I mean, obviously you're Kerry, I'm Mayo, but now that you're Hedford and I'm very South County Mayo, I feel we have this sort of connection. Mm. Before we get into the real chat, I want to um, first bring up the thing that made me like laugh out loud as I was you know, reading up about you. You do your own stuff and you collaborate with many people. And one of those collaborations is Lumiere. But that band was originally called... (laughs) I can't believe... Dingle White Female. That is genius. (laughs) Genius. Dingle White Female. I was cackling at home and uh, texting my, you know, Helen, the producer, saying that is fucking funny. (laughs) Like, it just is so funny. Oh, and it was such a joke, like, because when we got together with myself and my friend Elish and we became Lumiere, we used to drink white wine around the table and learn songs. And like, that was just our buzz for the, (laughs) and it was really like, what do we call ourselves, Dingle? And then we ended up getting asked to do something with no other name. And it's like... Elish's carry as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 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 It's a little stroke of genius. And (laughs) I'm sort of annoyed that I understand why why you changed it to Lumiere. I, I totally understand. Yeah. But I, I wish you could have just <laughs> kept it. it. Is so good, dingle white female. <laughs> well, okay. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, because I just I had to bring it up. Um, well, actually, we've been talking about your collaboration. So with Ailish, your Lumiere, mm-hmm. and you've had two albums. Two albums, yeah, yeah two albums, and we're th- we're always threatening another one, and then COVID got in the way, and so we'll de- we'll definitely do more together. But yeah. I've I've moved from West Kerry now, so I don't see her as much, and we're very much like we used to get together a lot and get songs together like very actively and very regularly so now that I don't see her it's kind of it's, it's more laboured go to Hedford you couldn't get her out of Kerry <laughs> for love nor money they'll tell to you some flattering story and then declare that they love you Um, but you actually have a very long list of impressive collaborations the people you've sung with, some, you know, more formally than others and, and so on. Like the list includes people, you know, that I love, like Sinead O'Connor, 
Damo Dempsey, who of course we've had on the podcast before, yeah. as Sharon Shannon, John Spillane. But obviously, you know, I'm a giant homosexual. And so my eye immediately landed on Belinda Carlisle. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, I never actually met Belinda Carlisle, but John Reynolds, who produces my albums, all of my albums actually, bar one, was producing an album of French songs for her. So I just ended up going in and doing back and vocals on a couple of the tracks. Um, but I never actually met her or hung out oh, with her. Oh, rage. I know. <laughs> rage. Yeah, yeah. yeah, because obviously I, I, you know, I'm an 80s gay. Mm. You know, Belinda is, is in my um, pantheon. Okay, well, so I want to talk to you first about one of your m- many um, projects, because you're very prolific, really, aren't you? Yeah, well, I, ca- I like collaborating and I like to be active, but I get very, very bored of myself. You know, so the solo endeavours and the solo missions, I find kind of lonely and I prefer to be working with people. I sort of get that. I mean, I mostly do shows on my own and that and probably it suits me in lots of ways. But then I love the gas crack that you get mm. in shows with other people. It's just a different vibe. And, um, like, you know, if you come off stage and you've had a buzz, yeah. it's gone well, you've had a buzz, yeah. and then you go back into the dressing room, if you're on your own. I know. It's weird. I know, it really is. And it can be like, it can just be a bit like, it can be a bit shit. Yeah, it can. Probably, or like a letdown yeah. or something. Deflating. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you've known to sort of like, ah, oh, that went Wasn't well. Wasn't I great? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or even, oh my God, when that awful thing happened. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah. definitely an entirely different experience. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um... One of your big projects of recent years um, is the Leonard Cohen mm. um, project. Tell me about that. Yeah, friends of mine own the IANEC, uh, the Glen Eagle Hotel yeah, in Killarney, yeah. um, Eileen and Patrick, and they were married for 25 years. And Eileen is an avid reader and she loves poetry and she absolutely loves Leonard Cohen. But um, her husband rang me one day, Patrick, and said they were going to be married 25 years and would I put together 10 Leonard Cohen songs, get a band together, just for their a surprise party for her. And, and, but why specifically did he ask you? Did he know you were a, a Leonard yeah, Cohen? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So I was raised kind of listening. My mother used to listen to Joe Dolan, Leonard Cohen and Springsteen. That was the sound of our house. And mainly Joe Dolan, actually. But That's funny. That's not... <laughs> the, the sound of the house, I imagine. Yeah, Joe yeah. Dolan was like that. Like, well, well Joe maybe. Yeah, he's just he's just the king. Everything. Oh God, I loved him. But um, so Pat, Eileen and I would always be talking about Leonard Cohen and Leonard Cohen lyrics, and we'd be sitting in late, <laughs> drinking into the late hours of the night. And then Patrick just said, "Would you put a band together and?" do this surprise thing for her and that would be his gift to her for their 25th wedding anniversary. So we did that. And then... It but now just... you say, so we did that. <laughs> I mean, A, that's really a musical thing. So we just did that. Yeah. I mean, that's not a, sm- that's not a small ass. No, it's not. And like, and because you don't have a permanent band, so you had to pull a Leonard Cohen band together. So pulled a Leonard Cohen band together and got Galway band, The Whileaways, who are very dear friends and neighbours of mine and incredible harmony singers. So... We became a kind of um, co-op, almost like a like a Leonard co-op, and then we had uh, a Leonard co-op. A Leonard co-op. <laughs> then we had a, um, an ama- like an amazing squad of musicians that live locally in Hedford, actually. You know, all based in around Campbell's Tavern there. So it's like they're calling it now the Nashville of Galway, but um, <laughs> <laughs> South Mayo. <laughs> Hedford has got notions. <laughs> notions, serious notions. There. <laughs> yeah. So we pulled a band together, and then we actually took a month to work out all the music. It took us a month to properly yeah. go through all the songs and work out all the harmonies and just make it beautiful. And people just started ringing us like the word just travelled and spread. And then we found ourselves in the Olympia. As yeah. you do. <laughs> yeah. I do not like those 
and 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 that was a kind of a pandemic project. So it was just before the year before, and then it bled into the pandemic. Yeah. So mm. like it was just we'd loads of gigs booked for it, and then they yeah all because the away. Olympia gig was cancelled and rescheduled and three cancelled. times or something. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And um, what is it about Leonard Cohen? I mean, Leonard Cohen fans are kind of obsessive, aren't they? You know, and, totally. Oh, it's a spiritual experience going yeah. to the gigs and whatever. Like I've never been to a gig, <clears> but he was around in my, it, just in my the, my ether, in my subconscious, in my conscious, my whole life growing up. But it wasn't until I became an adult, obviously, really, that I started to absorb it. And really, he writes about women so succinctly and so accurately. Like he describes female sensuality like nobody else. It's not patronizing. It's not pervy and sleazy. He just has this beautiful way of doing that. And I think he just does that whole, just the human condition, just really, really isolating and describing emotions. And so it's a little bit of work to kind of get into mm. the lyrics. And to, so I, I just absolutely love it. And then because of his style of singing, it's like quite monotonal mm. and it's very linear. But then when you actually, as a singer, go in to sing them, you realize that there's huge range in them and there's real amazing melodies. So I just love it. I love it. Mm. And your mother liked Leonard Cohen too. She did. She went to boarding school in Loretto in um, Killarney. And uh, for her leaving cert, she wrote the words of Suzanne for um, all her exams. Now Suzanne takes your hand and she leads you to the river. She is wearing rags and feathers from the Salvation Army counter. And the sun pours down like honey on our Lady of the Harbour. And she shows you where to look Among the garbage and the flowers There are heroes in the seaweed There are children in the morning They are leaning out for love They will lean that way forever While Suzanne holds the mirror Yeah. She wrote the, the words, words so she Suzanne. didn't. She didn't do the exams, and she just went in and she wrote Suzanne. Yeah, that just, is. I know she still cinematic. managed to get a job in the bank, so I don't know. <laughs> that is like a cinematic thing to yeah, do. Yeah, isn't it? It's, just, it's yeah. She just loved him, and he, and even now when my dad hears the music, like he's just so misty. You know, I can just see that it's so evocative for him. Just that music, you know. Mm. Yeah, God, I am absolutely taken by your mother doing that. I know. It's also a very brave thing to do. She was a brave person. And she came from a family of teachers as well. So edu education was everything. But that's that was just what she did. I think she was just really pig sick of nuns and their shit. Wow. Yeah. That's that's an amazing story. And it <laughs> feels like something that could be a Leonard Cohen song. Yeah, it could be, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you've you mentioned your mother and women. So uh, let's talk about fair play for a second because we had Karen Casey on oh, the show a good few years ago now. So I, I've been very aware of fair play. But for people who aren't, explain your involvement, what it is in your involvement. So fair play is an organization that was started kind of basically through conversations between women who play traditional and folk music. It really started off with gender representation. So we were all just sick of being the only girl, the only girl here and the only girl there. And, you know, I mean, all music, really, but yep. traditional music, 
um, has been populated largely with men over generations and generations. And we just had had enough and we were widely and really acutely aware that there are just amazing musicians, but they just weren't getting the gigs. And if they were, it was just one, two here and there. And we frequently I'd be looking at lineups that were just all male. So mm. we started the organization, uh, about six of us. And Karen was absolutely the head honcho, our fearless leader. She's amazing. And then very quickly, we became aware of we had to really deal with the underlying issues of around the representation and why is it maybe that some women play for a while and leave mm -hmm. and then it kind of evolved then into um, Misha Foster which was a, a Me Too movement. We started Fair Play in 2018 so I suppose we felt that because of the lack of gender representation but because it was we were a community of people that the solutions to that would be relatively easy so it would be something mm -hmm. that would be easily remedied and I thought oh we'll just point this out and they'll all say Great, yeah, come on, let's all do that. But that was not the case. And it appears that because traditional music is almost like a sacred cow or something in Ireland, it's beyond reproach. People hold it very dear. It's in people's families. It's in people's communities. So I don't think people were used to it being criticised. Mm. And I would hear things like, music doesn't recognize gender. And I was like, well, neither did my breakfast this morning. But <laughs> so it was like, felt, I think people felt probably like it was an attack on the culture, which I suppose it was. So it surprises me that there was so much pushback in a way. Yeah, they I mean, got pretty heated and pretty abusive at times, the pushback, you know. Yeah. But, and I was not, I, like I was really ill prepared for that. But I'm much tougher now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know Linda Coogan Byrne? I do. Yeah. I work with her a lot. Oh, yeah. you do? Yeah, on, on the just on the gender equality stuff. Yeah. Yeah, because you know her thing is you know you know her main focus is about radio play and mm -hmm. all of that kind of representation, and it's amazing the pushback she unbelievable. Had. It's amazing the pushback that there's been to that when I honestly would not have expected that kind of pushback in that field in particular. We were all surprised and I guess particularly in the realm of singing, like a lot of the singers are mm. female yeah. and they'd be really like really good and really well known. But then when it, when you get into... The and also not shrinking violets. No. The women in the... No. Um, but when you go into the instrumental stuff, that's mm -hmm. where it kind of really starts. And also like it appears that if you have, and it has been said to me several times, you know, like when I'd be pitching for a festival or whatever, they'd be like, oh no, we have our female act. So it's like you'd never get them all together in yeah. the same place once, you know. So it's like when you look at them, they are very striking. But then when you dig a little deeper into it, the representation is really bad usually. And and like after two years of COVID where everybody's resetting and we really hoped that now that we pointed this out, that two years to reset, everybody's programming again. We're now like taking all the festivals and doing the stats and the data. Mm. And it is about running around 20, 25%. So it's like... I think people will have to be gender quotas. I think people will have to be forced into it. It'll yeah. nearly have to be legislated for, particularly if you're getting public money. So if you're getting, if you're funded by the Arts Council or you're funded by the County Council or it's taxpayers' yeah. money, then I believe since 50% of that tax or whatever, you know, if it yeah. comes from women, that, that they're, they're going to need to, to be more conscientious with that. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, you mentioned your, your, your mother... And I suspect that your mother's story in some way has played into your passion or drive for gender equality and all that. So tell me your mother's story. She died in 2012. She was from Dingle, like myself, all belonging to me. She was an amazing person, bright, 
extraordinarily bright, really witty, dark, dark, dark sense of humour. Some of the stuff that she used to say, like I used to be just like, you can't say that. But anyway, she did. But she suffered profound childhood sexual abuse when she was a very young child. And my, I was talking to my aunt on the phone the other day and she was saying to me that, you know, that kind of trauma is quite often just the start of a pathway to just more lifelong trauma. So she then became pregnant when she was 19 with my father and they gave the baby up for adoption through St. Patrick's Guild, illegally registered, funny business going on there. Yeah, well, St. Patrick's Guild, you know, I, I, until in the recent scandals, I'd never even heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then she literally blocked everything out from when she was. So she went on to marry my father two years later. And then she put all of her trauma into a box somewhere in the back of her head and never thought about it. But it lived in her. So my whole life, I think I became aware of her. I don't even know trauma. I don't even know what to call it. It's been called so many things over the years, diagnosed and pathologized. But when I was about 12 or 13 and when she went to St. Pat's in Dublin, all the way up from Dingle for the first time, she went away for four months, five months, maybe. And that cycle continued then every year, pretty much until she passed away young at 57. So she lived a life of that. The box opened, you know, the box opened and and it all came out. My father said the other day we were talking about her and he just said that when that box reopened, that he never got her back. And they loved each other. You know, they were such a strong couple and, and so united in the face of all of the stuff that life kind of threw at them. But yeah, the box opened and we kind of never really got her back. And and how did you come to know her story? You know, was she, was she open about it telling you? Well, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm only recently kind of able to articulate all of this myself because I'm putting pieces of it together because we never actually sat around as a family with her extended family and my family and kind of discussed all of this. And, you know, people have slivers of memory here and there. It's 30 years ago now, you know. But she was going to hospital in Dublin and part, imagine this now, like when all we know about trauma informed counselling and responses to things. But she went to Dublin and she went away for four or five months. And part of her therapy was that she would come home to West Kerry and confront the man who had abused her. So her doctor told her to come down to Dingle, go into the guard station tell them where she was going and then go up and knock on this man's door and walk in the door God. and confront this, which she did. It just sent her spiralling. It literally like drove the poor woman nuts. And so part of her thing, I would have been about 12, 13 kind of then, part of her therapy or whatever at the time was that she was journaling and she had this old style, Do you know, the old style copy books, like mm. she'd one of those old style copy books and she had loads of stuff written in it, but she'd left it on the kitchen table in our old house. I didn't know what it was. And I went up and I picked it up and I read it and that's how I found out. And then it was just, it was a shit show is the only word to describe it. Yeah. Like there's no other word for it, but and then I left that house by, the, I was, I mean, I was living independently from when I was 16. Yeah. You know, I just was like, it was just a very, it was a painful place to be. Mm-hmm. And it's second generation pain and trauma. And I suppose that's why I question the nature of traditional music, because they're the two things in my life that have been like 
really significant and both things are passed down. And so I'm like constantly questioning that the things that we inherit, the things that we're given, you know, we need to examine them and like really figure out the bits that we want to keep and what we want to just leave in the past where it belongs. But there is intergenerational shame. And I suppose what I'm trying to do with this album, The Unquiet, is I, I hate this term, but I can't think of any other one. It was said to me, ancestral healing, you know, that you go back into the darkness of your past and you just try and illuminate it somehow. Yeah. You know, bring like on board with ancestral healing. Oh, good, yeah. good, yeah. It's interesting though. Um, to me, um, I know that people who experience that kind of trauma and then are dealing with it, you know, later in life and you know, in and out of hospital and all that, that um, th- there's a lot of pain involved there for them. But it's also very difficult for family members to also live with that, you know, other loved mm. one's pain too, and it can get in the way of your relationship with that person and complicate things because. Um, you may understand why they behave in certain ways and all that, but it doesn't make it easy to accept at the same time. And yet, um, you know, I, I get from you um, a very uncomplicated love for your, your, your mother there. It wasn't always like that. Yeah, that's what I'm sort of wondering. Yeah, yeah. It's no, it wasn't always like that. It definitely wasn't always like that. It was very fraught for a lot of years. And I suppose she's dead. She'll be dead 10 years now in, in mm. May. But there were definitely dark days in our relationship. But I think she was so acutely aware. I hate to use the word shortcomings, but I think she knew that because of her illness and her trauma that she needed to do some extra work with me in terms of preparing me to kind of deal with it down the line, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. So she she was very open and she talked a lot about feelings and about owning your feelings, about it's okay to be angry. And I, she prepared me, she, she raised a feminist, you know, so she, she, she really drilled that into me. I remember like even the Kerry babies at the time was huge, you know, for us being obviously from Kerry, but, you know, she was in outside for Joanne Hayes. And I remember her always like really schooling me on the fact that you're going to need to know this, like you're going to need because this is going to come up for you down the line. And I really feel like, she kind of gave me an education in that. That or it was radicalization. I'm not sure <laughs> which it was. Well, you know, they're interchangeable. Yeah. I would. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's quite the story. Mm. I mean, remarkable in many ways. And she sounds like a remarkable woman. And, and, and obviously her story has so clearly influenced your own work. Yeah. And so that's kind of lovely. It is because through the fair play journey, because I was working very much on the gender balance and like then I wanted a creative response to it. 
and also simultaneously, because I sing old songs and I sing traditional songs, the agency of women wouldn't be fantastic, mm-hmm. for want of a better word, in that. So I was like, somehow I can marry these. I need to make, I refuse to not make these songs work for me as a modern era woman. Yep. They're all about women from the past. As I was out walking one morning in May. And so I was like, I need to make these work for me. I need to recontextualize these songs so that I can sing these looking forward, not back. Mm. And then I just thought that that's what I do with my mother's story. I was like, okay, I can sing about her life because I mean, it's all in there. And then your mother died in her sleep. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I I don't know whether um, this is something I should say to you or not. But, you know, when I read that, I thought, that's how I would like to go. And so in a way, I kind of thought, I'm glad for her that she went to bed one night. and She did. And you know what? Like, this is is like a really terrible thing to say. But she was ready. Mm. She was very tired. At that point, she was very tired. I don't think that's a terrible thing to say. You know, like she was. And like I talked to my brother about it recently and I was just, we were talking about would she be into this way that I'm speaking about her life now, which was like when I found out about, when I read that copybook, she said to me, don't tell anyone. Mm. And that just caught so deep. Like I just, and then I didn't. I was just like, I didn't even tell myself. I was, it was just... And I've had this burden of this kind of secretive, weird shame thing my whole life. So I was saying it to my brother, you know, I was saying, God, I wonder, like, is this awful now to be talking about this? You know, would she support it? And he was just like, no, she was too tired to even think Mm. about anything. You know, she was wrecked. And also, you know, I mean, to be super blunt, the dead don't feel shame. Yeah. You know, they they moved on to something, you know, however you want to, you you know, whether you believe in an afterlife or not, whatever. They are somewhere else yeah. and the kind of earthly bothersome stuff of embarrassment and all that is their way beyond that now. And yeah. Yeah. And in, in a way, isn't that the most incredible, like very dark, but incredible release, you know, yeah. from that, you know, and I think she needed, to, I really do think she needed to just mm. exhale. Well, um, we are going to talk more in detail about, you know, your album, um, The Unquiet. But let's um, maybe take a little break here and actually hear a song. Lovely. And then we'll go back and talk um, a bit more about it. So um, what is the song you're going to do for us first? I'm going to sing The Old Churchyard, which is a song. uh, It's an old song, it's a traditional song, a really old song um, that I learned from a very handsome American called Jefferson Hamer. But um, yeah, it's a beautiful song. And you're going to be accompanied? By Creva Hopkinson Byrne, who is just the most gorgeous guitar player I think I've ever worked with. She's amazing. And I love a Quiva because my niece is a Quiva and I love a Quiva who then has the confidence to hyphenate Hopkinson Byrne after <laughs> the solid, you know, first name Quiva. <laughs> Trace up their name. 
Richard. Mourn not for them, for the trials are all. Why weep for those who will weep no more? For sweet is their sleep. <laughs> Gorgeous. Yes. I have to remark that Kriva is very cool. Isn't she? Isn't she? <laughs> Sickeningly, one may yeah, say. It's cool. <laughs> um, one last thing I want to um, just talk about your mother's story because it's mm. it, it's now relevant to yours. So your mother gave up a, a baby for adoption, and you are now searching for a sibling you have out there. I am. Like, I can't describe what that's like because I suppose when you kind of grow up with this real, like, this is not something we're ever going to talk about. <clears throat> it's too painful. And also, I think when people gave up um, 
children for adoption at that time, it was really drummed into them. Like that the worst thing, the closed adoption system, the worst thing you can ever do is interfere in that person's mm-hmm. life because you've just signed away yeah. any right at all that you that you have to even love them. So I was raised not talking about that, but somehow knowing it when it becomes mm-hmm. a kind of an inherent thing. So at the moment now I'm going through the process of, I'm, I'm just initiating it really. Yeah. And do you I'm, know anything no. about them? No. Do just you know the if they're a boy or a girl? Boy. It's a boy. Yeah. And you have no idea if he's in Ireland or elsewhere or alive or dead. I've done all the DNA stuff and nothing's come up. So I don't, I don't have, I don't know anything yet. Mm. But the strange thing is I was talking to a very helpful and nice man in Tusla the other day because all the St. Patrick's Guild files went to Tusla, who was like helping me with this and I'd initiated the trace. So what happens then is you get assigned a number and then they'll end up social worker, but they can't tell you how long the waiting list is. And he was like, he rang me from a mobile number, like, and he said, um, it's just, I'm having, can you just give me a few more details? I'm having a bit of trouble pulling up the file. And then he was asking me a few questions and then he said, oh, I have the file here. So I was on the other end of the phone from a person who was looking at all the information Mm. and I have none. Like it's mental. Yeah, so so the information is literally in front of him it's and he literally can't there, tell you. And he can't tell you. And you're asking him, but can he give me any non-identifying, you know, things? Yeah. And he's like, I can't. But I'm part of the Adoption Alliance that's run by Claire McGettrick. And so there's oh, a lot of, yeah. yeah, fabulous. Yeah, so she's personally emailed me because, you know, uh, instructions as to how you can, there's processes and there's things that you can do. And I think if you can get access to some documents uh, that are redacted, from what I understand, I haven't got any of these yet, but some of them could be quite badly redacted and you might get bits of information and then you can get another bit of information mm. and, you know, mm. Yeah, it's incredible mm. the, the whole, the whole thing. Yeah, it is. It is incredible. And I mean, I was reading about it before I left the house today. I woke up at half five in the morning and I was looking, flicking on the phone, and they were saying that they've done the case study that they, it could be affecting like twenty thousand people. Yeah, easily. I think. You know, I mean, I'm not that old, yeah. and um, you know, a, a number of girls in my social circle, you know, whom we were teens and slightly later, you know, gave up babies for adoption yeah. and all, you know. And mine too. I'm 42. It. Yeah. It's bananas, you know. Yeah. You know, I have another really dear, very close friend of mine who's really great. She was third generation mother and baby home. Her mother was in one. She was in one. And her grandmother was in one. And like we're, she's my friend, like we're tight friends, you know. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. nuts. Yeah, because I think people... I think younger people think it's really far in the past. No. no it's not. I mean, I, I visited, no, you know, I have been in physically a mother and baby home when it was a mother and baby home. I'm visiting a friend. There you go. Like you know, this is because of the repercussions of that are current. It's still our current. Mm-hmm. And all of this talking that I'm doing, like I'm 42 years of age. <clears throat> I am liberal. I vote. I think for myself. And I have lots of, friends from all walks of life and everything. And it's really difficult for me to go back to my current family and have these conversations. And I would look at other people having these conversations going, oh, aren't they great? And it's, of course, sure, that's the way we are now. That's just the way everybody is. But, you know, it's not like, it's not when you have to point it in. Similarly, with all our biases and all our own kind of internal stuff, like when you have to go back the way, it's much closer to the surface than, yeah. than we think. 
Well, let's talk about the music. Yeah. Um, so um, tell me the starting point with um, Unquiet, which is the album. Yeah, so I took uh, Eileen's life and I broke it down into kind of 10 phases. And then I emailed out like the community of singers, I suppose, uh, that I admire and that song collectors and asked them, sent them like, could you think of a song for this, this, this? So it started at birth, started out and it was actually a song called Sambo Era that drew me to that. And it was more about the air, the melody of that song, actually, that was just really innocent. And it just reminded me of the innocence of new babies and, you know, um, so started at the start of her life and then worked chronologically through what I felt. it started with her it did become more broad so there's a few bits of my own things in there so then I, I um, researched traditional songs and then for the 10 parts I just specifically took a traditional song and then I really love singing with other singers um, so I duetted with a few people then on, yeah. on a few of them yeah and um, they're not all Irish traditional songs right? yeah there's a few from there's one is uh, from that Felton Lon and it's from Northumberland and then like the two magicians that's kind of questionable there's versions of it in Scotland and in Ireland as well, the Twa Kirby's. It's kind of broader folk, I suppose. She But your interest really is to take a traditional song and somehow root it in the present at the same time. Yeah, the way I view it is that there's traditional material, songs, poems, stories, mythology, that is of the people of Ireland. Whoever identifies as being one of those people mm. has complete entitlement and ownership to use that material however they see fit. Mm. Uh, not everybody shares that point of view. Yeah. And then there's the aesthetic, I suppose, which I see as being kind of separate, you know, like so the traditional music aesthetic, like what it sounds like and, you know, instruments and the way it should be played, you know, and all of that. I kind of see that as quite separate. And I suppose my aesthetic isn't really that. Um, so I've always just made music that is a kind of a jumbled up version of all of the music that I like, my influences, the stuff that mm. I like to listen to. So I've never felt overly tied to the traditional music aesthetic, but I absolutely have to the material. Well, speaking of a, a, a lost child and mm -hmm. uh, a sibling uh, and that you're looking for and all, you're going to do another song for us and tell us about it. Uh, this song is a ballad from Northumberland and it is called Felton Lonnen. And I searched high up and low down for a song. You know, you would one would think... You know, if you think about Irish songs, we have so many songs about the emotion of rebellion or the emotion of moving to England for for work. Mm. But considering that 
we have this painful history in with our relationship with women. There are absolutely no songs about it. You know, there are also very few about the famine. But, you know, so I had to go as far as Northumberland, uh, basically is what I'm saying, to find this song, which is called Felton Lonin. And it is a song about a missing child. Let's hear it.
Gorgeous. Thanks. Beautiful. That line, I'd rather lose all, all the, the all my cows than my young laddie. Yeah. Which on the surface seems, well, I would bloody hope so. But on the other hand, it also speaks to a time when... It does. You know, and like, I think, imagine like how difficult until very recently it was for us to talk about. I mean, even repeal, you know. I mean, I think that was just such a big time <clears> for <throat> the letting go of shame, you know. So you can imagine when people were trying to say or express what it was back mm-hmm. then that they had to say. So they had to say everything in code. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I'd rather lose all the cows. As you say, like, it seems like this really tiny thing, but that's huge. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Some of the other songs were interesting too, because, um, you know, I was reading lots of interviews with you and that, and you're talking about sort of, you know, reclaiming a sort of female sensuality from traditional songs. And one of the songs does that sort of beautifully about the skirts. It's actually called The Bird in the Bush. Yeah, I know. I was giggling about that too. Perfect, isn't it? And the bird, it flew in and the bird, it flew out, like, of the bush. I mean, it's mental. Like, it's brilliant, you know. So I I was trying to find a song about female sensuality without a trace of shame, where it was just, like, basically someone going for the ride for the crack, like. Yeah. And obviously, like, they're, they're they're not in abundance. But I did find that one and it was just, you know, oh, well, there you go. There is one. Yeah. And it was, you know, and her, she, her petticoats to and flow, but it really is sensual and it's not a projection, you know, it's not a, a sexuality that's projected on. Yeah. It's like it feels inherent and, and real. I think that one particularly struck me because I was reading about you and the album and the stories behind it. And that one in particular struck me because at the same time, I was rewatching Ryan's Daughter and, of oh course, sweeping Carrie Beaches and yeah. all of that. And the whole movie is, you know, about repressed female sexuality. So it seemed like a, the right movie to be watching while reading <laughs> about you. Sarah Miles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, your own musical story, you know, starts when? 15, yeah. So I left home and I was just just about to (laughs) to turn 15, found myself in a squat in Amsterdam, as you do, and then moved back home. And then I went out to Australia when I was 18 and I've just kind of been singing for my supper since Mm. all manner of bits and pieces and lovely gigs and crap gigs and all of it. Yeah. So you are... You, you'd usually be described as, you know, focusing your traditional singer. But your influences are actually everything and anything. Everything. I mean, when you were, you know, living in a squat in Amsterdam or in whatever part of Sydney, <laughs> you, 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 you know, 
You weren't only going to trad gigs. I most I certainly wasn't. Like when I moved to Sydney was when I really got into funk and soul and disco. Mm. And that's just, I danced. Like I just yeah. danced and danced. I always loved like nightclub and like late night culture, but I actually never liked the music until I went to Sydney, until I actually got and I properly heard. Like I, we didn't have Donna Summer in West Gary growing up, but <laughs> you know, like it, was, it wasn't until then, you know, that I got into dancing to really good music. It sounds to me like you discovered the gays is what I happened did. in Sydney, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> because, you know, you're listening to disco and yeah. soul when I'm you're home. in nightclubs. That's definitely a gay venue. Yeah, yeah. yeah totally. You know, you're, you're living in Hedford now with your fellow who's also a musician. Yeah, Eamon, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Um, and you have a daughter. I do. She is? Five and a half. Five and a half. Yeah. Would I be right to imagine that maybe having a daughter... Of that age now, also in some ways, uh, feeds your sense of urgency around all of these things we've been talking about. Absolutely. And particularly like with the inheritance of shame. And I'm doing a degree in NUIG at the moment on, in social science because I felt like when I was doing all of this work, I don't even know what to call it, that there was large gaps in my understanding of society, you know, and my understanding of the workings of things. So I said, OK, I'll just go and do a degree, which I'm just now like... <laughs> but, um, go and do a degree. I just go and do that because I never went I'm sure I was in the squat in Holland when yeah, I was yeah. 16 there wasn't I didn't darken the door of a school again until recently but so um, it is for that reason you know it is so that these links and these chains that run through my own family that it ends here and when she looks to me and all of this stuff is coming out and she's learning about how Ireland hopefully used to be that I'll be able to just eyeball her and say, well, look, here it is. This is it. And this mm. is what I've done to just really try and square the circle or whatever you say, but to stop, to stop it for you. Mm. And I, that's a very, very, very important to me because I see how that don't tell anyone moment in my life really impacted how I lived my life, how I felt about myself, how I felt about other women, what I internalized at that time. Uh, somebody said to me recently like that, those secrets snowball internally, you know, mm -hmm. they just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it's just something that's just alive, you know. So I, that was really important for me to do and really important for me to do for her. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think um, if I was going to, if I was a betting woman, I would bet that it is ending with you and your family line because, um, yeah, it's amazing to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I want to um, ask you one other thing, um, and I don't know why, but I just enjoyed the idea of seeing this line. Tell me about your Bell's palsy. Oh, my God. My <laughs> I, I don't know why I have the idea of saying Because, you know, um, everybody knows Bell's palsy because it, it always comes out of the blue. Yeah. It's on your face. It's on your face. And no one ever knows how long it's going to stay. And all. I know. So it is like... There's something uniquely terrifying about it, but because most people recover beautifully and all that, yeah, you yeah. also feel like it's a terror we can talk about. Yeah, so have I'm, you had I'm it? All, no, no, but I'm always interested in asking, oh, you know, when I meet people who've had it, I'm always like, gosh. Yeah, so I had my daughter in Belfast and I woke up the next day and my grand, my her grandmother, my husband's mother, Mary, who is so mm. nice. And so I was in one, like after having two days, I was trying to have the bloody child. And then anyway, I was lying back at the bed and she came in. I'm like, so you're kind of looking at me. And I was like, what's wrong with this one now? It's just after I know I'm not at my best. 
she was kind of gawking at me. So then I came home and I got a bit of sleep and then I got up and my father was there and he was gawking at me as well. And he was just like, you look really strange. So it was literally the next day. And so then over the space of like 72 hours, like in a line down the middle of my face, just gone. So I didn't blink and my mouth was like drink through a straw, couldn't speak, couldn't sing. Yeah, because I mean, that's why, you know, I think the yeah. story is particularly interesting um, that it's happening you know, when it happens to someone like you, because yeah. um, you're a singer. Yeah. And like all singers, singing is a huge part of your identity and who you are. It's also your living and yeah. all of these things. Yeah. But to suddenly wake up one morning and that's all. It was all gone. In, yeah. And so I'd have to go out and put a kind of um, tape my eye shot and tape my eye shot at night because you can get like corneal damage and stuff because you, you can't blink. So it was nearly bones of six months coming back. It was terrifying. The first part, like for the first four months, there was absolutely no movement whatsoever. It was just completely all lopsided. And then slowly. So I used to sit up in the bed and whistle, try and whistle every morning. And then like six months later, I sat up and went. And I was like, oh my God. But it's still, when I get tired now, one side is still like a bit lazy. How long? So that's five and a half years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always terrified. Like the minute I get a little earache or anything like that, because it it can come back. But I think it's like in 40% of people don't fully recover. Anything to do with your face, of course. Yeah. It's so public. And we get a spot and we don't want to leave that You don't. And then you have to do that thing where you go, okay, this might be, I mean, I might be disfigured. Yeah. And then, do you know, weirdly, you just kind of go, well, there's, do you know what, there's worse things. Like, it's amazing how your mind does kind of, uh, yeah, you know, know, you just kind of yeah. go, do you know, it'll be grand, it'll be fine. So, Well, you know, what I always say, you know, um, you know, I was diagnosed with, which, which was at the time, a life-ending condition in the, 19, in the 1990s. Mm. And, um, and, and people always, you know, want you to have learned something from that. And the only thing I ever learned from was, you know, that, you know, you still need to get bin bags. Yeah. And so no matter what happens to you, you know, you're forced to continue because you need to get fucking bin bags. Because you do, like, yeah. and you you just have, and what are you going to do? Yeah. Only just put one foot in front of the other and yeah. get to go out to the shop and get but the bin It's amazing bag. what yeah. you can just, okay, well, I just got to get on with that yeah. or whatever. Mm. But anyway, your face is beautiful again. <laughs> I'm sure it was, you know, beautiful even when it was all oh, It's a bit slimmer, I think, but anyway. Um, but so, wait a minute, for six months, you you had to tape your eye closed, you know, at night time and all. Yeah, and going out. Long, yeah, it was it was a real dose, actually. It was a real dose. And I just, like, I remember the nurse saying to me, the midwife that used to come around after I had Kitty, um, and she used to say, just take pictures, you know, like, just really take pictures because you won't have them and you won't have pictures of you and your daughter. But I didn't. So I was just like, I was just so conscious of it. Oh. So I have no pictures of, of her. I just... You know, but by the last kind of two months, though, I got my head around it, really. To be honest, I really had. And I was like, you know, it'll be fine. I'll just do something else. Fuck it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just do something else. Fuck it. Nuts. (laughs) I'll go to college. I'll get it. Whatever. Um, You know, it's been a total delight talking to you. Thank you. Um, Ditto. Yeah, and um, so many interesting things and... Best of luck with all of your endeavours, including the degree. Yeah, thanks. Uh, when, you, when is the degree meant to be finished? Oh, Jesus, 
four years. So I've just done the first year, so I've another three. Oh yeah, I just don't want to think about it. It's traumatic. It's more traumatic than yeah. Bell's Palsy, I'll tell you. Um, what do you have coming up uh, professionally and all that that we should be looking at? The album's out. The album's out. The and then a couple of bits the Unquiet yeah. and a couple of bits over the summer and then a lot of Leonard Cohen stuff actually towards the end of the year. And those, and that project is called Bird on the Wire. That's Bird on the Wire and the Wild Oasis, yeah. You're going to be doing more live shows and people will go and see that? Yeah, we're going to be back in the Olympia and we're doing one in the Ulster Hall in Belfast and yeah, all around the country from kind of November on. Yeah, and then I'll be doing festivals and gigs and stuff around for the summer. Okay. Um, well, Pauline, thank you. Thank so you being very our, much. Our very you. first guest back um, you know, on this third season of um, the Panty Personal. So it's been lovely to have you. Um, and I hope all the gigs go well and um, best of luck with the album and um, love to Kitty. Thank you. Um, and thank you all out there for listening.